And so there ends the reading, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. I invite our sermon audio listeners to please read those verses if you've not done so already. Today's message is titled, Pastor Jezebel. The title of which I hope you see is related very clearly to the text. Friends, it is a fact of reality in our world that anything of value is subject to being faked or counterfeited. Now, one area where that's been a long-time problem, for example, is in the jewelry or gemstone business. With the advent of modern technology and computer imaging, fake gemstones are harder than ever to spot with the naked eye. And today, those who specialize in the purchase of gemstones have got to be aware, for example, of three different types of gemstones that are made to look more valuable than they really are. For example, synthetic gemstones and simulated gemstones are all man-made, chemically made in a laboratory. But then there's a third kind that are enhanced gemstones that they're natural, but they've been physically altered to improve how they look. So when you go buy expensive jewelry, you want to be very careful that you're getting the real thing. Today, we read the fourth letter to the seven churches of Asia, the letter to the church of the city of Thyatira. This church had a lot going for it, but like the church at Pergamos, they were a bit too willing to allow for something other than the genuine truth to be taught or advocated in their church. As the Lord Jesus himself begins his address to this church, you notice he calls himself the Son of God. Now, this is one of these many things, and we've seen this several times already, where we read something that sounds, okay, that's natural enough. He is God's Son, second person of the Trinity, what we confess in the creeds, etc. So we just sort of take it for granted what that means and how it's meant to be played out. It seems like a natural enough thing for the Lord to call himself that. But as with these other things, the sharp two-edged sword, the seven stars in his hand, This has more behind it than just what meets the eye, because in the city of Thyatira, there was widespread belief in the Son of God, but not in Christ Jesus. You see, the church of Jesus Christ has faced opposition from Satan at every turn, and a major source of this opposition is from false religions, false doctrines. Now, in the city of Thyatira... It was a city of pagan religion. Well, I guess all of these cities that are being addressed are. Some maybe more so than others. But this one in particular, it was unique. Because unlike the other cities where one or more gods are worshipped, Thyatira had taken the beliefs of a number of different gods, or beliefs in a number of different gods, and in what we would call syncretistic matter, combined them into one. So, if you were to ask the average Christian citizen of Thyatira, and there weren't that many compared to the number of pagans, but ask him or her what god or gods they worshipped. Excuse me, I made a mistake there. That should be the average non-Christian citizen. If you were to ask them what gods they worshipped, well, they would have probably told you something like this. Oh, we worship the one god, Teremnos, Propolis, Propator, Pythios, Apollo. Now see, that's actually the name of five different gods. 
And what they've done is they've combined the, the beliefs in all of these gods into believing in one God. Uh, that would be like somebody today being asked the same question and saying, oh, uh, well, we worship Jesus, Buddha, Yahweh, Krishna, and Allah. The pagans of Thyatira believed that this God of theirs was, in fact, the Son of God. And if that were not enough, the Roman emperors, as we've already seen, were also beginning to hail themselves as the Son of God, the divine Son of God, Augustus Caesar, for example. So Christ calling himself by this title is no accident. And it's more than just a, a theological statement, as we might think of it. He refers to himself also as having eyes like a flame of fire, which speak of his ability to see and know all things. His feet are said to be like fine brass, burnished bronze. And symbolically, that speaks of his purity and his holiness. On the other hand, there is something else going on with that statement because it has a direct connection to the city of Thyatira. Like the city of Smyrna, Thyatira was a city of trade guilds and unions. But Thyatira had many more of them than Smyrna. And unlike the trade unions in Smyrna that were largely run by the Jews, here in Thyatira they were almost all dominated by pagans. And ironworking, or working in brass, was one of several major industries in the city of Thyatira. And we don't typically think of these ancient cities as being cities of industry. You know, with the smokestacks and the big factories, of course they didn't have those things. But commerce took place in these cities. The ancient world was a lot more, quote, advanced than what we might assume in all of our arrogant modern technology. You ever heard of the Silk Road? The Silk Road was a trade route that stretched from China all the way into the Middle East and, uh, and into that part. A massively long area where traders selling spices and purple and uh, um, garments and all kinds of things traversed far distances on foot, on, by camel. And here in the city of Thyatira, not connected to the Silk Road, but you had commercial industry going on with people fashioning and working in iron and brass. Now, as with these previous letters, the Lord begins by praising the church and highlighting the works that they do. And the first thing he says, he, he mentions their love. Now, this is the familiar Greek word that a lot of people seem like everybody knows this Greek word, agape, referring to works of benevolence and charity. But what is often overlooked in these contexts is that this is Agape love as defined and determined by God's law word, not by man's word, not by human sentiment, but by the divine rule of God. Most people today think that showing love means giving somebody what they think they need or want. Biblical love more often means giving a person what they need, whether they think they need it or not. For example, is a person without food. They may be hungry, they may be starving, and they understandably want something to eat. But if they are also without Christ, they need much more than physical food. Any church, any ministry that does not share the love of God with those who are poor spiritually, as well as physically, is not really showing them the God kind of love. All right, and then he mentions their service. Now, in the context here, and in these other instances... 
The love and the service are first and foremost directed to members of the church. We are part of the household of God. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, our primary responsibility is to each other. He doesn't say exclusively. He's not excluding everybody else. But first and foremost, love and service takes place within the household of God. And then he mentions their faith. And he means their faith in him and his word as the basis for these deeds of love and service. The objects of our faith are Christ and his word. So if we are trying to minister to each other and the world around us for any other reason than our love for Christ, then we have two problems that we're going to encounter. First of all, we won't be able to do these things if we're trying to do them to please ourselves or each other. That's because all of us are prone to sin for these things to succeed in the long run. Now, there may be some initial success, but sooner or later, if we're not doing it on a biblical basis, humanistic problems are going to come in. But then secondly, that leads to the thing of idolatry. If we are trying to minister love and service for anything other than God Almighty, then it becomes idolatry. And this is one of the major, major problems of all humanistic efforts at benevolence. It seeks to glorify man. And more often than not, it seeks to glorify some government or government agency, right? God declares that works of benevolence are simply not acceptable to him if they are done to please men or ourselves. We must be motivated by obedience to his word and love for him first. We must please our Heavenly Father to begin with. We must obey his law word as that which inspires us to love and serve each other and the world. Now, the church at Thyatira was apparently doing a wonderful job at these things. Because in the first part of verse 19, he makes this remarkable statement, this compliment to them. He says that your last works are greater than your first works. In other words, rather than their eagerness and their zeal for the works of Christ decreasing over the years, it has increased. I wonder today how many of us could be congratulated by the Lord like that. Yes, it's one thing to be tired and burned out, so to speak, because you've been dedicated so much to, you know, doing the Lord's work and in, in ministry of the church. But, you know, I'm afraid that some of us have mistaken a decrease in zeal for the things of the Lord. We've mistaken that for burnout. How many of us here today can say that we're doing more for the Lord today than we were five years ago or even ten years ago? The church at Thyatira was doing very, very well in those areas. But then we come to verse 20. You know, of the seven letters, this one to Thyatira is the longest of them all. And the reason it's longer is because of the amount of time the Lord spends reflecting on their problems. The Lord criticizes the churches at Pergamos and Thyatira for essentially the same things. And yet, this letter is almost twice as long as the other. See, the difference, I think, is in the extent to which the problems in those two churches had taken hold of their respective congregations. I think it's worth speculating that at Pergamos, the false teachings, the the immorality, the heresy, they were being tolerated as more of a potential threat than an actual threat on the ground already infecting the church. But here at Thyatira... It was a whole different story. This was a living reality. You know, false doctrine frequently comes in the most appealing and fashionable form. 
And that what, that's what makes it hard to deal with and hard to spot. See, within our corner of the Protestant Christian world, the traditional Reformed churches, we have had this problem going on now for quite a long time. I mean, think about it. <clears throat> the denomination that we left a few years ago and withdrew from was already, after less than 50 years, starting to show signs of doctrinal and moral compromise. And it's only gotten worse since we withdrew. But think about it. The denomination that that denomination left, our sainted, beloved Presbyterian Church U.S., the old Confederate Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church of the South, so-called. You know, this was the church of R.L. Dabney and James Henley Thornwell and uh, these great, great Southern Presbyterian and Reformed theologians. That church didn't start out as a compromised church that led to the birth of the PCA in 1973. It was a solid church. But over time, false doctrine, false ideas, humanism crept in in the most appealing and appealing loving form. So it was hard to deal with. You know, in the previous letter to the church at Pergamos, a reference was made to those men Balaam and Balak. So here... We have Jezebel referred to. And as you heard from the Older Testament reading, a very despicable, wicked woman. She was the daughter of a pagan ruler who married one of the kings of Israel. She did. And the man she married was named Ahab. And she lost no time in turning him away from Yahweh, the true God. And with her encouragement, the nation of Israel fell into depravity and sin. Now, you know, we, we picture her perhaps in our minds as this sort of you know, a woman with fangs and saliva dripping from her, her mouth like she's some ravenous, crazed demon. Well, in one sense, she probably was. But let's, let's be realistic about this. This is how this happens. This, this woman didn't present herself in that way to the king and to the leaders of Israel at the time. She seemed very appealing and sincere. She wants them to, to fit into the culture around them and that sort of thing. That's part of the challenge, again, of false doctrine. That's why the Lord raised up, in this case, the prophet Elijah to say, wait a minute, I don't care what you think about this. This is a violation of God's law word. And she hated the prophet Elijah. She tried to do everything she could to have him killed. So she used idol worship, sexual immorality, deception, and ruthlessness to lead Israel into false worship. Now, one thing you notice in these letters to the seven churches, and also what we're hearing about from the Older Covenant and the Old Testament church, these false teachings, they all share certain things in common, even though they may be known by different names. For example, they're connected by idol worship, eating and drinking to, to excess, uh, the drive for power and sex, predicting the future, deception to entice the congregation away from God's revealed truth. And so what it all comes down to is this. It's a refusal to obey and submit to the word of God and preferring instead the words of men. Humanism, in other words. So in wrapping this up in the remaining time, I want to mention four aspects to this heresy that's taking place here in Thyatira. And as we consider these four things briefly, I think that you will see that they're still very much with the church today, sadly. Here is the first. False prophecy. So this woman in that church 
here symbolically referred to as Jezebel, claimed to be a prophetess. That is, she claimed that God revealed things directly to her and told her to speak for him. That was something she was claiming for herself. It was her own assertion. And if the believers at Thyatira had given heed to the words of the Apostle Paul, well, I'm guessing they would have known right away that this woman's claims were false from the very beginning. Because the office of a prophet or of a pastor in Scripture is an office of ordained authority. Now, this woman claimed to speak with authority over the church. So that was the first obvious sign that she was as phony as a $3 bill. You know, maybe it's important to put this in context. This was not unheard of in those days that there would be women who were held in high positions in, in, in various religions. There were priestesses and, and highly respected female religious leaders and authorities back in those days. But not one of them was Christian or in any way associated with the church of Jesus Christ. They were one and all pagan. You know, one of the many things that has set the Christian faith and the church apart from all other religions, including the Judaistic religion, has been the high calling and respect that it has given to women compared to these other religions. Women were variously uh, held in positions of ministry and work on the lower scale, not ordained. And they were very seriously and effectively involved in the work of the church in the earliest days. But there's not one place, either in Scripture or in the early church history, that we read of women holding either pastoral or prophetic office in the church. It's just not there. It was only the pagan religions where you found that sort of thing. Then the second thing we see as a spinoff from this heresy is sexual immorality. Say in verse 20, it says there that um, she tries to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. The word there translated immorality is the Greek term Pornusai, and that's a word that specifically means immoral sexual debauchery. And it may not appear that there's some connection between false doctrine and heresy in the church with sexual immorality, but the two are very closely connected. In the days in which this letter was written, the trade unions in that city that I've already mentioned, they were a dominant force in those communities. And each trade union, each guild had a certain god to which it was devoted. Now, typically, these guild unions would have a big feast, maybe several times a year, in which there would be a lot of food and wine and very elaborate religious ceremonies with sacrifices to the god or gods to which the guild was dedicated. And by the end of the night, the whole thing would usually degenerate into a drunken debauchery. So the woman here symbolically called Jezebel must have been involved in this sort of thing. And she was encouraging the leaders of the church to do the same thing. Come on, just get right involved with all the rest of them. And there is a clue as to why given in verse 24. Now, I read it earlier from the New King James. I'm going to read it this time from the NIV. The Lord says, to you who do not hold to her teaching... And notice he says, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you. 
So apparently this false prophet was encouraging those people to get involved in this wicked activity on the pretext that, you know, to really understand and know about sin, you've got to experience it yourself. You've got to know the deep things of Satan. Also, the prophetess was encouraging people to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, understand, the problem here is not the food per se, but its association of that food with the false religion. Because food that was given to idols was symbolic of worshiping that idol. I don't know, maybe a a modern comparison would be um, a pastor of a church wearing a t-shirt out and about. Uh, or, or some symbol, a necklace, a medallion around the neck, uh, symbolizing some other religion. There's a guy that uh, Michelle and I watch on YouTube. He's a, one of these world traveler guys, and he does videos. One of his favorite places is India. Now, I don't know what the guy's beliefs are. I don't think he's, I'm pretty sure he's not a Christian. But I mean, this guy, wherever, not all the time, but more often than you might suspect, he's wearing this massively colored emblazoned t-shirt that's got the Hindu god Krishna on it. And he, he even wears this, we see he wear this thing in some Muslim countries of all places. Uh, he's lucky he didn't get his head bashed in because Muslims don't take kindly to worshiping false gods, what they consider false gods, and we would join with them in considering that one. So imagine if Pastor Roberts, you know, or Dr. Gentry, or somebody walking around at the market downtown Greenville, and you got this this shirt with the Hindu god Krishna on it. What, what, in the, what would that be about? See, that is giving in to the spirit of the age, the same spirit that has possessed the pagans at Thyatira. Now, maybe, as you sit here this morning, you're assuming that, you know, I don't have any of these temptations to do these sort of things, but I want you to consider some of the temptations that we face every day that can just as effectively cause us to compromise with the world, as much or so as the church at Thyatira was doing. For example, do we confuse Christian faith and practice with certain political positions or political parties? That's a tough one, isn't it? Do we hold a view of the creation of everything, the creation of the world, that lessens the divine and miraculous origin of this world? Do we support beliefs and practices that our society says are equitable, they're democratic, but they're contrary to the law of God. Do we get on board with that? Are we willing to stop believing in some biblical teaching because it's currently unpopular? Compromise with the world is like a man who goes to a ball game and he cheers for both sides to win. And when asked why he does that, he replies that no matter who wins or who loses, he's going to be happy. See, that is the kind of Christless, gutless Christianity that this Jezebel woman was promoting in Thyatira. It's the same kind her modern-day followers are promoting as well. Now, let's consider the third thing, and that is an unwillingness to repent. The prophetess Jezebel here, symbolically called again, had been given plenty of time, the Lord says, to repent of what she was doing, But notice, the strong emphasis is that she was not willing to do it. It's not that she could not. She was not willing. She would not. Now, you know this subject keeps coming up in these letters, doesn't it? And I hope you don't get tired of hearing what true repentance is all about. We need to hear it. 
True repentance is to turn away from evil ways. It means to change behavior, not merely express regret or sorrow. You know, our, our catechism is very clear on this in reflecting the biblical teaching. You know, out of a true sense of sin and sorrow, the catechism teaches, we then endeavor after a new obedience. So there's the change in the behavior. The true repentance is something seen. And then finally, we see here the consequences of spiritual adultery. You know, in terms of married life, adultery can be so devastating to a marriage covenant that it's one of only two grounds that the Bible recognizes as a reason for divorce. God takes the same attitude towards spiritual adultery. And one thing, I don't know if we have time to completely explore the depths of this, but one thing you need to understand and, and you, you need to come to grips with about this book of Revelation is that the book is very much a document of divorce. You know, many people hear that, well, what are you talking about? This is predicting the future, right? And, the, you know, the, the, the black helicopters and the locust and the, the Antichrist and all the rest of it, the millennium and all that. Um, friends, as I said at the very beginning, this book is just drenched in Old Testament, Old Covenant reference. And one of the things that we know as part of God's law is the, the rules he gave for divorce we also know that God constantly referred to his old covenant people as his bride, his wife. The book of Revelation tells us the story of God divorcing old covenant Israel for her continued unfaithfulness. Israel, century after century, uh, pursuing idols and other gods, going after other gods and being accused by the Lord of committing adultery with other gods, and then the Lord restoring them, they would continually do it over and over again until it finally reached the ultimate crescendo, the high mark where the nation of Israel, through her leaders, got into bed with the Roman government in order to execute and murder the divine Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, Yahweh appointed for himself a new wife, a new bride, and that new bride is the new Israel, the church of our Lord Jesus. In Thyatira, the local congregation was deeply involved with false teaching and immorality, and the Lord warns them that they will be cast into a bed, all right. It will be the bed of death and tribulation unless they repent. But for those who do repent, for those who do overcome, there's this, this remarkable promise in verses 26 to 28. Those who remain faithful to Christ share in his inheritance. And that inheritance is nothing less than dominion over the earth. You know, friends, dominion over your life, over your family, over your community, over all creation is an unavoidable concept. There will be dominion. And it will be either the dominion of Almighty God, the Holy God of Scripture, or it will be the dominion of Satan through his various minions and tributaries. In verse 27, the Lord gives an indication of what fate awaits those nations who will not yield to the rule of Christ. They will perish utterly. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to be attacked by some Christian force in a military conflict. Not at all. Because what these people never understand... And we're seeing it play out in real time right now. 
It's not just on the pages of distant past history, as, as in, say, what happened with the Roman Empire. They never learn that they are suicidal by denying the rule of the true God, by preferring their own way to God's way. It leads to death. To quote it yet again, Proverbs chapter 8, 36. All they who hate me, the Lord says, are in love with death. The word rule here in this text in verse 27 comes from a Greek word that means to shepherd, as in, say, a shepherd and his sheep. You know, the shepherd is the absolute ruler and voice of authority to the flock. And there is no other authority to which they are bound to obey except his authority. And so too it is with our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls both the church and the nations of the world to obey his law word. Jesus promises to give them the morning star, it says here. So it is Christ himself promising himself to those who keep his word to the end. But there's something else. You know, the morning star in that time and place, just as it somewhat is today, that would have been associated with the planet Venus. Because that planet is the brightest in the hours before the dawn. Friends, I believe we can see this as our Christian witness, that it's meant to be a sign of the dawning of a new day. A new day in which idolatry and immorality will be seen as the snares and delusions that they are. A new dawn, a new day in which Jesus, our King, will establish his glorious reign over all the earth. Let us pray.